thank you. Thank you for the privilege of gathering together in your house. God, thank you um, just for being a God who has redeemed us. God, thank you for sending your son to make a way for us to know you. God, in this season, even though Christmas Day is over, God, we have hope that redemption is still here and that you have offered it to us, each of us, God. And you've also offered it to the nations and to the world. God, thank you for that, um, for being a God who has come to us. And so, God, as we spend time in your word this morning, I pray that you would just give us a fresh perspective of who you are. Let us know you deeper, God. Let your word just speak to our hearts. God, let us carry it to our neighborhoods, to our cities, to our to the world, um, so that your name may be made known and made great among us. God, I thank you for this church, this gathering. And God, I, I pray that you bless them that uh, you would just speak through Pastor Tony this morning, that um, that we would just take your gospel out and be carriers. God, that is such an honor. And God, I thank you that you have allowed us to um, preach your gospel and to share it um, with those who've never heard. So God, be glorified in us. And uh, we ask all this through your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Emily, very much. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 2 Timothy chapter 3. As we return to the pastoral epistles, 2 Timothy chapter 3. Sometimes um, the first sermon one preaches before we head into a new year provides the preacher with uh, an opportunity to set a certain tone or chart uh, a certain course. And so I'm very thankful where we are, or we are where we are in the pastoral letters, because um, as we enter 2021 in particular, 2 Timothy 3 is shockingly timely for us. Remember that Paul is sitting in prison for what will be the last time. He will never be released this time. He will not escape. He will be martyred for his faith around 65 A.D. He will die. There are problems, there have been problems at the church in Ephesus where he sent Timothy, this young man, to pastor, to restore the church to wholeness. And while First Timothy, if you remember, was a, a broader letter in outlining church behavior and uh, government structure, these kinds of things, Second Timothy is profoundly personal. These are the words of a man who's about to die to what may be his closest friend, a man who is like a, a son to him, a beloved Son to him, and Paul has been exhorting Timothy to do his best to present himself approved unto God, a worker in the preaching ministry of the gospel who will have nothing to be ashamed of when he stands before the Father, rightly handling the word of truth, because he will be opposed on every side. And these difficulties are going to increase for him because Timothy, as Paul, was ministering in the last days, just like I am just like every preacher, every missionary, every church of like faith in God and in his word is ministering this morning, this very morning. And beloved, ever since I was a boy, every preacher has been saying the same thing. I don't mean that as a critique, but we are entering times that are changing. There is no question about this anymore. Humanity entered its last days with the ascension, the enthronement of our Lord Jesus Christ. Easter morning was the beginning of the end. But our world and the flesh and the devil will not go down quietly. 
even though they're defeated, what is needed from the pulpit in these last days? What can we expect? How can we be ready? As you may have heard me mention before, the fight over the inerrancy of Scripture was supposedly settled several years ago. Few people today in They're still there, but few in in Orthodox Christian circles really question whether or not the Bible is inspired by God. It's not as popular anymore to do that. But there's an increasingly dangerous and vocal movement within evangelical Christianity that is spreading through the American church like a cancer about the sufficiency of Scripture as it has been given to us. What's in it is true and helpful, but it's not all that we need or it doesn't sufficiently address the unique needs of our time. And so more is needed than the scripture if we're going to be relevant, if we're going to have something to say. This is the battle of our time. That's it. That's where it lies. And it comes from mainly inside the church. But it's not an honest question or an honest issue. The point of rejecting the sufficiency of scripture is not due to the Bible's lack of necessary or relevant information. that That's what is said the issue is. That's not what the issue is. It's due almost entirely to the fact that we love ourselves more than we love God and His Word, and the Bible just will not leave us alone about it. And so we want to change it. The rejection of Scripture sufficiency betrays our ongoing demand to be our own God. It is going to get very difficult in many different ways to follow Jesus in America in the weeks and months to come, I think. What do we need to endure? The difficulty of the life and ministry of godliness meant Timothy had to be committed to the Scripture so that he would be properly equipped for it. Because the scripture provides all that is needed to face the difficulty of the last days. And so the man of God must be continually committed to the truth of scripture in order for him and for the church to faithfully endure. Let me read verses 1 through 5 of Second Timothy chapter 3 to begin. But understand this. That in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. Avoid such people. Now, do you see the conjunction there at the beginning of verse 1? But let me go back up and read 2.24 down through this so that we can better understand why Paul begins with the word but. Verse 24 of chapter 2. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, Timothy's opponents. And they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. But understand this, 
that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. So Paul's concern is the reality of the opposition Timothy is going to be facing and how it will threaten both his endurance and the contents of his message. So he's saying, as you are praying and hoping that God will grant repentance to those who oppose the gospel, those who breed quarrels in the church, understand that these days will be difficult. In other words, they're going to be hard, and apparently this repentance and turning of people like this will be in short enough supply that it remains difficult for him. Because, or for, in verse 2, people are one thing above Everything else, this will be the prevailing spirit of the age in the last days on earth, Timothy. People will be lovers of themselves. Every sin that follows from that first is a fruit or a result of loving oneself more than God above everything else. Because people love themselves then, which is nothing less than prioritizing yourself and your desires and your preferences and your knowledge above any and everyone else's, including God's, because people love themselves, they love money. They're proud and arrogant. They become abusive. They'll hurt others to get what they want. There's a reason self-love is the most promoted, valued, and celebrated thing on the planet right now. No matter where you look, art, social media, sports, it's all about love of Self, And it's the will and strategy of the devil to divert us away from the salvation and the value and the worthiness of God alone. Always remember this. Always. A lack of love for self is never once identified in scripture as an issue or a problem. Not once. Rather, it's exactly the opposite that is targeted as an issue. The assumption of self-love, that it's already there, is made in the law when God commands Israel to love your neighbor as yourself. In other words, peace and harmony would come easier if we loved others the way that we loved ourselves. Think about it. We are usually angry with other people. We can become depressed or disillusioned. Not because we actually think so little of ourselves. Not because we actually think every time that we're worthless. But because we are so in love with ourselves and so infatuated with ourselves, it hurts our feelings that other people aren't as thrilled with us as we are. We need redeemed from our love of self. We don't need coddled in it. The destruction it causes, particularly in the church, is exponential. And this doesn't mean, by the way, that the answer to self-love is self-hate or self-deprecation. The answer for love is, or for self-love is never going to be found in the self. What we need is a higher and more beautiful and more worthy object to feast the eyes of our souls upon. And that can only be found in the face And in the arms and the forgiveness and the mercy and the grace and love of Jesus Christ. Self-love, rather than making things better, rather than making us healthier people, leads even to the breakdown of the most fundamental human relationship by causing children to be disobedient to their parents. Look at that. That's in the text. right? What is happening when a child is disobedient to their parent often? Self-love is happening. These yahoos won't let me do what I want. That's what's happening. And so they disobey because they value themselves over their parents in that case. Self-love causes people to be ungrateful, 
unholy, heartless, unappeasable. That's interesting. Slanderous, without self-control, brutal. All that stems from self-love. Not loving good. Verse 4, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit. Lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And then here is where the text just drags us back down to earth and makes us look somewhere we did not expect to look in a list like that. The mirror. Because this reads like a list of the world. Like he's describing Hollywood, right? Or, or government or something. But remember the context of Second Timothy. Because the next description can't possibly be referring to the world. Look at verse 5. Having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. And then a command. Avoid such people. Paul is talking about the people in the church in these verses. The last days will be filled with difficulty for the minister of the word in context because the church will be filled with people who love themselves and yet maintain the appearance of being godly. Ask yourself when you read this list, how in the world can people characterized by sinfulness like this still appear to be godly? How can those two things coexist? Because... Like all legalists, as we've been taught throughout the pastoral letters so far, such people that love themselves master the externals. They excel in good external behavior that makes us think and everyone around them think they're such a wonderful, godly person when there is rot and decay in their heart. They know how to look clean. While being dirty, right? Jesus talked about such people, men, when he talked to the Pharisees. Outward, you're beautiful, but inside you're full of dead men's bones and excess. And you cleanse the outside of the cup. The inside is still dirty. It's always been an issue. And the root of it is love of self, pride. But such people know how to talk in such a way. They know how to value the right causes out in front of other people. They're always doing that, just signaling to people how virtuous they are, right? Or they behave in front of others in such a way that you would never guess how wicked they are underneath. The appearance of godliness. What poison this is in the church. It's like being filled with tumors that the body doesn't even know it has. They're just killing someone and they don't even know it. This happens over years and months at a time in the church. This is how easy it is to look the part. right? That's how easy it is to look godly. You could be like verses 2 through 4 and still look godly. We don't know how else to be godly but with external behavior. You can be heartless and have the appearance of godliness at the same time. You can be a lover of self or abusive or brutal or unappeasable and look like the picture of Christian piety. That makes, for one thing, which is why it's here in Second Timothy, that makes pastoral ministry extremely difficult. Because it rarely looks like the minister is opposing someone who deserves it when those days come. 
when those situations come. It's always, well, I've never known that person to be a gossip. I, I've, I've never known them to be divisive or, or sinfully demanding or unforgiving. And yet so many are. That will characterize the last days in the church. And we've been in the last days since Jesus ascended to heaven. What a plague. Let's be honest. What a plague such people are on a church. Timothy better not choose such people as leaders. That's part of the command to avoid them. The worst thing you can give someone who has a wicked heart in the church is a place of authority or influence. Getting someone out of a place like that is one of the hardest things the church goes through as a family together. Avoid such people, Timothy. That's the charge. Avoid them. Isn't that interesting? Stay away from them. Don't let them infiltrate. Don't let them settle in. Avoid them at all costs. In 1 Timothy 6.20, there were irreverent babble and contradictions to be avoided. Now there are certain people to be avoided in the church. That's a command. One that I'm... Just now, I, I, I hope, I don't know, finally learning to obey that I've just ignored all my life. People that are wicked and love themselves but appear to be so godly are a scourge on the church and the gospel. People that have the audacity to make it all about themselves. It's just insane. Like, well, you, you'd be amazed at how people talk. I want this thing. You should do it. Because I want it in the church where the Savior died on a cross. We talk like that. These are the people that appear to be so kind and so helpful and do so much, but love themselves, love money. So they give so that they can gain a certain amount of influence or leverage. And you'll know that because that will come up. That's how people will threaten you. That's how they maintain power. They'll threaten to quit doing all the things they do. They'll threaten to leave the church. They'll threaten to quit giving. Right? They love money. So they'll withhold their money if you don't give them what they want. Why? Well, because they don't help or work or give so much because they love God, but because they love themselves. And if the church and its leadership won't recognize it, there will be ongoing hell to pay for it. Unappeasable. What a heavy word. Unappeasable. That's a mark of the last days? That there will be people you couldn't satisfy or make happy if you literally licked their shoes in the church? They're just unappeasable. We, we, we don't, we've been called to bear with one another, to forgive one another, but we cannot do those things and look very godly to the naked eye. We can sing the songs. We can close our eyes when we pray. We can memorize scripture. We can hold to the old ways. But let somebody change something that we love or not do something that we want. Take away a dearly beloved tradition. Maybe watch the claws come out in the church. Watch for the treachery and brutality and slander that follows. Right? This is why we talk the way that we do. This is why we warn each other about landmines in the church. 
don't do that. Don't, don't change this. Don't move that around. Don't, I mean, because that person will be upset. These people will be upset. That's how, that's the rationale for not doing things. People will be upset. Just match that up against the cross and see how it sounds. The glory of Jesus and I will get upset if you don't do that thing I want. Right? We allow that to continue like it's normal among the household of God. And Paul says, Timothy, as the preacher, you avoid such people. Right? Presumably until you have to confront them. There comes a time then when it would be a sin for a pastor to keep being nice to certain people, wouldn't it? It would be more damaging to the body to coddle and let sleeping dogs lie than it would be to confront it and deal with it or just ignore and avoid it, as Paul says. That's not a strategy driven by fear, right? It could be mistaken for that, but by a desire to keep the church faithful. And if you put all of this together, the onus here, such people make it very difficult to remain gentle, as the preacher is called to be in 2, 24 and 25. Why does Paul tell Timothy to avoid such people? That's a very difficult command for a church. There's people you're supposed to avoid. Why? Look at 6 through 9. 4, so here's why. Among them are those who creep into households. So among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jamres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far. For their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. Now, his line of argumentation here is amazing. The reason to avoid such people is because these are the kinds of people from which come, among other things, the false teachers he's been talking about, those that creep into households and start undermining the truth of the gospel that should better be coming from the pulpit. False ideologies, new doctrines, speculation. Remember, that's been his issue the whole time, the, the biggest issue all along in Ephesus. People that love themselves always find a venue to peddle their knowledge or find a way to be heard, always. And they get very good at it. And in Ephesus, it was apparently the homes of certain kinds of women who found that what Timothy was preaching was insufficient. So maybe they're saying things like, well, I just need more than the gospel. I, I need more than that. I need this and I need that. And other people, you know what, me too, I've been thinking about that too. We should start meeting and we should start talking about it. We should go further and have a deeper study. This text is not speaking of all women, by the way, as though women in general are just too sinful or weak to discern truth from error. That's not the issue here. It's talking about some women in the church at Ephesus who were burdened by sins and their own fleshly desires to such a degree that the gospel, the word of truth, all through the pastorals was not enough for them. These are those women in that church that always wanted more, right? More, new, different, unique. Does it speak to women? Is it the word of God? Yes. Well, then, yes, it does. There's no need to 
patronize with Scripture. The Bible isn't written like that. It's not written topically. It's not written to affinity groups. It's not intended to be used this way. Why do we have all these things? The women's Bible, the men's Bible, the bowler's Bible, the patriot's Bible, the hip-hop Bible, the people that run up the escalator for some reason Bible. There's a Bible for everything, everybody, every affinity group. What was the trait such women had that paved the way for self-loving false teachers to get their hooks in? What, what was verse 7? Always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Beloved, there is a point where what, where the Bible has said what it's going to say. Part of the whole point of this passage is to remind Timothy as the preacher that what has been written is sufficient for everything that every believer needs, male or female. At some point then, a craving for more and an ongoing craving to go deeper is not a sign of maturity or health, but a sign of one's inability or unwillingness to accept what has been written. We need to know the difference. In other words, there is a kind of learning that is hurtful to us, beloved. And it's learning that seeks more than the truth that God has given and calls sufficient. That truth is accessible, male or female. You can have it. You can gain it. The knowledge of the truth can be attained, but at some point it requires telling ourselves to be quiet and accept what God has said. Not, by the way, what man has said. My title does not permit me the sole authority of spirituality in your life. Right? It does not. This isn't man's, it's not that what man has said, that if the preacher says it, you have to abide by it. Absolutely not. You abide by what the preacher says to the degree that he's echoing scripture. And that's why. Not because it comes from him. If you follow a teacher or a preacher that says you can't survive without their unique insight, that is a charlatan and you don't need them and they will hurt you. Hurt us. When we refuse the sufficiency of the word of truth, we make ourselves vulnerable to being imprisoned by lies. Paul is saying there are wicked people in the church that will take us captive and a defense must be mounted against it. Look at verse eight again. Just as Janus and Jamres opposed Moses, so these men also oppose the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, just as Janus and Jambres. So Paul is comparing those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions with the two magicians in Egypt who fought with Moses and Aaron. And I think he does that because they too denied the power of true godliness by what they did, just like false teachers and lovers of self were doing in Ephesus. True godliness isn't found in one's ability to do something. True godliness isn't found in fanfare or magic or visible displays of power or intellect or pomp or shiny lights, etc., etc. It's found in the covenant love of God manifested in Jesus Christ, resting on a person in such a way that the gospel is evident. Remember what Paul told Timothy, godliness was 
Back in First Timothy chapter 3, it is Christ. He is the manifestation of godliness. Where godliness is, Jesus will be proclaimed, adored, exalted as revealed in Scripture. Where the appearance of godliness is, it will sound like you're warming up for the opera. Me, 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 all the time. All the time. Janice and Jambres opposed the truth by opposing Moses because Moses had on his lips the word of God to Pharaoh. As the faithful man of God has on his lips to the church in 2 Timothy. They opposed the truth by doing what? Displaying that they had the ability to do the things Moses and Aaron were doing. Their staffs also turned into snakes. Moses came to proclaim freedom. They wanted people to stay in bondage. How do they do that? We have as much power as they do. We can do what they do. Just like false teachers who appear to be true, because in their adherence they can produce or themselves perform the appearance of godliness. And it's bondage. But they knew neither the scriptures nor the power of God. Right, Those in the church in the last days that love themselves or become false teachers are doing just that, denying the word of God, rejecting the faithful preaching of the word, if that's what's taking place. Why? Because they look good and sound good and could do many things the preacher can, maybe even things he can't. Look back up to verse 5, the appearance of godliness, right? Preacher, I can get results. You can't. I, I, I preach and people's lives change. I do things and it produces numbers and it does this and that. When you preach, the church goes down in numbers, right? God is blessing what I do. He's not blessing what you do. Timothy, how do you fight results? How do you argue with appearances? Right? That, that's what makes humans distinctly human. We judge by appearances rather than with the truth. According to Isaiah, that's what made the Messiah so wonderful and beautiful. He didn't judge by what his eyes saw or his ears heard. That's all we do. We follow appearances. We follow what looks good. We don't care if it is good. We just don't want to be embarrassed. It takes a toll. It had taken a toll on Timothy. Remember the opening of this letter. He could barely live without crying at this point. Verse 9, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. That's a comforting word. In other words, Timothy, eventually the truth will shine brighter and go farther and last longer than error. Right? Because what is he? There are people who serve God's people because they love themselves. Right? They have the appearance of godliness, but they love themselves. Notice those two things are opposite. They cannot coexist. True godliness and love of self. And you can tell when people are actually serving themselves in the name of serving God. Because again, they use their service as leverage. You don't do what they want. They take it away. They complain. They murmur. They get angry. They'll let you hear about it. They'll try to pressure you to do what they want. And appear godly while doing it. But eventually people who serve God's people because they love themselves... Paul says they'll reveal themselves for what they are. When Aaron's staff that turned into a snake ate those of Janice and Jambres who turned into a snake, God was making a certain point. 
right, about who really has power, about where his word truly rests. So the best thing Timothy could do is just keep believing, keep preaching the truth. What else can he do? In verse 10, you, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness. Right? See that as an opposite, a counterpoint to the list we were given earlier. My persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch and Iconium and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet for them, from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. While evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Here are the calm, measured instruction of Timothy's spiritual father. Evil people are always going to be there, Timothy. The imposters from verses 2 through 5. That's what Paul calls such people. And they'll go from bad to worse. They don't get better, they get worse. They'll continue to deceive and be deceived. That's unavoidable that there will be people like this. The preacher will always face this. The church will always have this in its midst. It's not pessimistic then to expect that, to assume it's there. It's biblical. There are people like this in every church, and they will be throughout the last days. But Paul says, you've seen my life, you've heard my teaching You know who I am. You know what I live for. You know about my faith. You've even seen me suffer violent persecution at the hands of such people. Timothy had been stoned, or I'm sorry, Timothy had seen Paul stoned until he thought he was dead and watched him get back up and head right back into the town where the people were that did it. Timothy has been discipled by Paul. That meant Paul had lived closely enough to Timothy for Timothy to know how to imitate him, right? So he hadn't just learned his doctrine, He'd been close enough to him to see his life. That's what biblical discipleship in the way of Christ is. It's not just come to this class and learn these things. It's watch me live. Be close to me. Watch how I love my wife, raise my kids, study, pray, work, etc. Watch. Right. Verse 12 is the central fact that shapes, I think, all these words to Timothy. He's trying to tell him all who desire to live, not pretend, not just appear to be, In verse 5, a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, Timothy. That's the way it is going to be. Again, to the degree that Timothy is faithful, Timothy will suffer. One commentator cautions us here not to commit the fallacy of affirming the consequent here. This is very good. For example, all cows have four legs, but having four legs doesn't make something a cow. So, All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, but not all who are persecuted are godly. Sometimes people are persecuted or mocked or ridiculed because they're obnoxious and arrogant and self-righteous or pushy and rude, etc. They like to think it's because they're so godly. Beloved, I, I think we'll know what real persecution is when we finally experience it. I don't think there'll be any question Jesus was murdered for what? For healing the sick. For preaching good news. For being the Messiah. Like a lamb before its shears is silent, Jesus went to his death. In other words, true godliness will get you killed. And true godliness speaks for itself. We have to know the difference. The world will be the world. Lovers of self will do what they do. False teachers will keep trying to poison the church. 
But as for you, in verse 14, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed. Right? Don't go after new things. Continue in what you've learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. I love this. Timothy, you've known the truth your whole life. Keep right on studying it. Keep right on believing it. The simplicity here of God's command in the face of a world on the brink of destruction and filled with wickedness. The simplicity of it. Remember and continue in it. That's it. Always go back to the deposit. So it wasn't enough that he learned it when he was young. He had to keep bringing to mind the very same things. These things, verse 16, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. In other words, there is no task to which the minister is called, for which he is not equipped to perform by the Scriptures. If all the church had was a meat locker and a Bible, we'd be just fine, beloved. We'd be just fine. We have brothers and sisters in that predicament as we speak around the world. and They are as much the church as you and I. And they don't have anything They literally, maybe somebody has a Bible. What if they take our Bibles? Well, then we better memorize them. Why do we take the Bible so seriously as the church? Why do we believe it's unlike any other book and has a power and authority over us that's unequaled by anything else in all Creation, Because the scripture is literally the word of God breathed out by his spirit through human minds into human hands onto physical pages, scrolls originally. Every word, every sentence is profitable for teaching, for reproof when someone is going the wrong way, for correction so that they learn the right way. And to train us in what is truly righteous. Not what appears to be. For whatever does not come from faith is sin, right? True righteousness. That, so here's one of the purposes of God inspiring the word that reveals his son to us. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. That apparently comes through the increasing knowledge of what is in Scripture, not from speculation, right? This is for the man of God here, not a man of God, simply saying that this is how Paul refers to the preacher throughout these letters, the man of God. It was a term that referred to the prophets of old, but now refers in context to the preaching elder, not because he is so good or so high above the church, but precisely because he has been charged with preaching this book to God's people. The Bible is so rich and profitable, so that God's man for the task of preaching may be whole and ready to glorify God in all that he does. The scripture provides all that is needed to face the difficulty of the last days. It is the love of self not the insufficiency of Scripture that causes us to question it. 
God says his word is his word. Breathed out by him, inspired, inerrant, infallible, precisely because it's his word and has in it everything necessary for his people. Let that give you comfort. If it isn't there, you don't actually need it. Just let it give you comfort as things start to get taken away. That's my point here. It, it's, it has everything the believer needs. Right? To, to, to become like Christ. I have bread to eat that you don't even know about, my disciples. Therefore, the man of God must commit himself to it because of what it is, because of what it has. Beloved, being spiritual or spirituality is never to be valued over study. And I know it's less, you know, flashy and less, I don't gain what I need for you each week by meandering throughout my days thinking, looking for, you know, special things, but by burying my nose and my heart in this book until I understand it. Wrestle with it like Martin Luther did until it yields. These are the words. These are the words. There aren't other words. These are the words that are able to make you and I wise for salvation through Christ Jesus. These words, not other words. These words. Everybody wants to be spiritual, right? But nobody wants to be religious. It's so looked down upon. As Brian Wolf merely puts it, but we have a God who speaks, beloved. We have a God who speaks. And as soon as God speaks, there is religion, there's doctrine. There are assertions being made when God speaks about what is true and what is not true. He says, as soon as God talks, there is truth. And the truth is always distinguished from error. The desire for spirituality without religion is the idolatrous longing of the sinful heart for a God that is mute. Right? The mute God is very nice. He doesn't command. He doesn't interrupt. He doesn't challenge. It's almost like I'm God and he serves me and therefore I'm willing to serve him because he makes much of me. I then will make much of him to be spiritual but not religious is to have a God who doesn't talk. But here's the problem. A God who doesn't talk doesn't make any promises. And if we don't have his promises, if our God does not decisively and unilaterally act, there is no salvation. None. You and I need this book because it reveals Christ to us. Beloved, these days are evil. People are evil. And according to the Bible, they're only going to get worse. We cannot change that. We will be assaulted and opposed and in danger, not just outside. And all our, you see what the enemy is doing? All our eyes right now are on the outside and the threats without. Right? He's got us looking very far away from where the actual issues are for us as God's people. We may never enjoy the favor again that we've endured and had in our country for over 200 years. It may all be taken from us. What will we be then? 
Will we be able to stand? Will we be able to exist or will we not know how to exist without all these other things? We've had a difficult year where things have not been the same. For some of us, our faith has been threatened by things not being the same. I'm not knocking you. That's not my point. I'm not trying to be mean and scold you. I'm begging with you, beloved. We've had a few things taken away from us. And it's like we don't know how to enjoy Christ anymore. I know it's not the same. I know it stinks. Christ is the same. Nothing has changed. Nothing. What we do, what we like, that's changed. Christ is not moved by these things. And He's your rock and my rock and my Savior. Don't be afraid. Don't listen to the enemy. Don't be fooled. You know what you need? Christ. And you have Him. Everything else is details. Everything else is details. The only inherently profitable body of information for us is the pages of this book. So I better speak it. And you and I better hear it and listen to it. These are the words that are able to make us wise for salvation in Christ Jesus. These are the words by which we have been informed that there is a Savior. Because these words were proclaimed, you and I have been saved. Lovers of self want God there when called upon, but also want Him mute so that they speak and He doesn't. All sin, all lies, all error is simply the exaltation of the self above God. It's the expression that began in Eden, right? I will rule myself. I will decide what is good, what I should have, what I will eat, what I will listen to. But Jesus speaks a better word. In Christ is the call from the new Adam to come and eat, to take and live, not die. And we need this word. That's exactly what we will do. We'll die. Even if we're not dead. Beloved, I need this word. You need this word. It has everything we need for these days. Do you understand? Everything we need for 2021. Who knows what it's going to be like. Everything we need is here. All of it for all of it. It is sufficient for everything we need and are called to. This this can't be up for debate. Not in the church. Not in the church. Look to Christ. Hear His Word. Believe His Word. You are His child, believer. You have eternal life. Nothing and no one can snatch you from His hand. And everything He wants to say to you before you see Him is in this book. So hear it. Listen to it and believe it. Believe the word of God. It is sufficient for you and me. All of it. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for speaking to us. For revealing yourself. By your word and power from the very beginning. And once and for all, finally, in your son. Father, I pray that we would believe the word of Christ in your church. I pray that it would be 
because it reveals Christ. A shelter for us. Let us remember that the book is not eternal life, but your son is. And so we look to him for life. So to the degree that this book shows him to us, let us believe and have faith and joy and endure and have peace. I ask and pray these things in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.